see one generation proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word to the next generation. And we pray that those that heard this message this morning will at one time grow to proclaim that same message to the next generation. Uh, We are celebrating Palm Sunday, but we're going to do it in a little bit different way this morning. Um, First off, I need four volunteers to read uh, at the time. So there's one, two, three, four. Now, what I'd like for you to do is when you read, please read loud enough that everybody can hear. And I'll, I'll tell you at the time. Um, in fact, Becky, can I have a pencil? My pencil, please. Okay, Tara, would you read John fourteen six? And I'll tell you when the time comes. Uh, Becky, if you would do... John 10, 11, and 14. And then, um, did, Michael, did you say you would read? Okay, if you'll do uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And David, you were the, the next. Uh, you've got uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Let's pray before we go into the Word. Father, I do ask this morning that you would teach us, that you would motivate us, that you would move us, that you would bless us, that you would convict us, uh, that you would comfort us through your word and through your table. As we hear both of these um, means of grace, Lord, just by your Holy Spirit, be with us this morning. And we ask that you would... um, You would bless us, please, uh, by your presence in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture reading this morning is uh, John 12, uh, 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had done, they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that uh, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Um, We come to this story and I'm not going to really expound the story so much. Uh, It it is one of the few that are uh, few stories that you see in all four Gospels. Uh, We picked John. It's kind of the shorter of the story. It's very um, pointed, very poignant. But what we see as we look at this story, as we look at the beginning of Holy Week, is that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. 
in riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, and that the people who were waving the palm branches and crying out Hosanna, as we understand the story and have read it time and time again, we see at the end of the week, they are the same ones that cry out, give us Barabbas, uh, when the choice is offered between Jesus and Barabbas as to who's to die. We see that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem uh, as a king, but not as a king as would be understood at that time. Um, The kings and the conquerors that would ride into Rome and ride into any city uh, was always with a large crowd, always proclaiming their greatness, always proclaiming uh, what they had done and the uh, uh, bounty and the goods and the slaves and the conquered people. They would, uh, they would be on display, but, but not this Jesus, not Jesus as he comes into the city. And so we see the beginning of Holy Week, but what we have to understand that this is nearly immediately after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So if you think of the history and how things are coming together and how things are moving, Jesus has just done the biggest thing that could be done and it's caused a stir. People know what's happened. As it says, those that saw it happen continue to give testimony, give witness about it. And Jesus, after this huge, massive uh, miracle that he did, now comes into the city. And as we know, it, it becomes Holy Week. And it ends up with Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then Easter. And yes, Easter is this coming Sunday. What we see here is that there is a plot, we read just before this, that there's a plot to kill Lazarus. Why would there be a plot to kill Lazarus? Well, he's the evidence of what Jesus is claiming to be. And so if you get rid of the evidence, you get rid of the claim. And so there's a plot to kill Lazarus. We also know that there's all kind of intrigue and mess going on with the uh, religious uh, leaders of the time to get rid of Jesus, to, to do him in. And what we see is there's a confusion, or not even a confusion, but there's just a lack of understanding as to who Jesus is. There are rumors and ideas and thoughts about Jesus, and we see this all through the Gospels, and we see it leading up to Holy Week, and we see the culmination that Pilate doesn't know who he is, the people really don't know who he is, and the disciples didn't even know who he was until after the resurrection, and even then they didn't know who he was. And so there's confusion as to who Jesus is. He was an itinerant preacher that upset the power balance. You have the people, uh, he's very popular with them because he's fed them, he's done miracles, he's healed them, Uh, He's done all kinds of things. And this becomes a threat to the religious establishment. They knew Jesus was an imposter in their minds. They really didn't grab that he was the Messiah to come. What they thought he should be is not how he was presenting himself. They, They wanted a Messiah that would break the chains of Rome. You know, those chains that as as Rome ruled, 
that if a soldier told you to carry his shield or his sword, you had to do it. If uh, they wanted a cloak, you had to do that. The Jews were at the beck and call of Rome, which was not a kindly occupying power. We hear stories about Russia and what they've done in the Ukraine. This was the same thing and perhaps even much more brutal. I mean, Rome was just not a kind power. Rome, not only would the religious leaders see Jesus as a threat, as their power base was threatened and the people began to question them, but Rome would see him as a problem because here he is being proclaimed the king of the Jews. And of course, nobody in power as Rome would want to hear that there's another king um, vying for the power and for the kingship of Israel. Uh, I don't know if many of you remember Larry Norman, but there's a song that Larry Norman wrote called The Outlaw, and it's kind of a cool song. And he goes through, he was an outlaw because, or some say he was an outlaw because he was always on the move. He was often in trouble. And he really was, his band of followers were a bunch of ruffians. You know, a bunch of hardened fishermen and and some were kind of, not crude, but just rough people. So perhaps he was an outlaw. He might have been a poet because he spoke in parables. He told stories. You know, he brought the people in by by speaking to them in a way that they could understand, in a way that was intriguing. And he used art, really, to speak to their hearts. Pictures of the good shepherd, of a woman who would clean her house to find the, the prize, the pearl of great price, those things. He, he brought them in. Perhaps he was a sorcerer. He walked on water. He healed people. He did little tricks with fish and bread. Maybe he was a sorcerer. He raised someone from the dead. What normal person does this? And then a politician, perhaps, spoke about freedom. He spoke about corruption. And he spoke about a kingdom. So what I want to do this morning is to look at a couple things. What I'd like to look at is what were the views of Jesus as he was coming into Jerusalem, as he was moving into his final week, and as he was moving into his his purpose and his joy to provide sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for his people, who did people think Jesus was? And so we come to these things. What the religious leaders thought that Jesus should be was a political Messiah. We've already spoken about this. The religious establishment wanted him to come in and overthrow uh, Rome. We see that they missed Isaiah 53, that Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and that he was the good shepherd and that he was the one who was gentle and was sacrificing his life. There were others before Jesus came. There are actually lots of little messiahs that, com- that uh, proclaim themselves as messiahs that were fighting against Rome, and that's really what they wanted. But then also there was one within his group that wanted that too, and that was Judas. 
Here Judas is walking with him for several years and he didn't get it. They wanted a political Messiah. And so what happens when he doesn't fulfill their dream? When he doesn't fulfill what they think his purpose should be? You have plots to kill him. You have Judas who betrays him. Another that we could see is in Mark, and for those of you who are compulsive note takers, I'm going to be moving quickly through some scriptures. And so if you want those, email me afterwards and I'll send them to you because we're going to move a little quickly. Uh, Mark 3.21. What was the view of Jesus's family? (laughs) As he came into a a place where there was a lot of people, and I read this, this in several of the accounts, and it really doesn't say why they actually said what they did. But basically, I guess to rescue Jesus from the crowd, they basically said, he's out of his mind. This is his family. He's out of his mind. This is mom. He's in the King James. He's beside himself. The ESV puts a little bit clearer. He's out of his mind. Basically, he's nuts. Well, there's a view of Jesus. The religious leaders... What did they think about him besides that he wasn't fulfilling the dream of the Messiah as they understood it? Oh, he is possessed by Beelzebul. I mean, who can do things like this unless the devil is the one that's giving the power? And so you have that kind of thing going on. Um, A blasphemer, John 8, 48 through 59. Boy, if anyone ever wonders or questions you about, you know, is Jesus really God? Uh, Read that passage where he basically ends up saying, before Abraham was, I am. He wasn't stupid and he knew grammar. And so what we have there, and to prove that point, it's not just that he made a mistake with his grammar. The religious leaders were ready to kill him because why? When he said, before Abraham was, I am, what's he saying? I'm God. It's, it's what, what God told Moses. I am that I am. When Moses said, who should I say sent me? I am that I am. Jesus makes that claim. So we could go back to his family and go, you know, he's a little off. Or as C.S. Lewis said, he's a liar, lunatic, or the Lord. One of the two. And I think as we read the scriptures, we know which one it is. There are various views. We have Peter. Uh, Who do men say that I am? We see that in Matthew uh, 16, 14 through 16. Who do men say that I am? Um, Well, some say you're this. Some say you're Moses. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. Well, Peter, who do you say that I am? You're the Lord. But you have Peter expounding the different views that were held of Jesus by the people at the time. And to give credit to those people, Jesus did speak in parables. And there were times when he spoke and he hid from people and he removed himself from people. And he also warned, saying, don't tell this because my time has not come. So Jesus was not many, many times outright crystal clear about who he was. But we have the privilege and we have the um, 
the upper hand because we have the scriptures and we can read the whole story at one time and not be living in that stream of history as it's coming at you uh, as you walk through that. So, yes, folks didn't get it, but then again, there were reasons why perhaps, and, and the very real thing is they were darkened in their minds because they were not regenerate. They didn't understand they had not received the Holy Spirit. We have one of his, even after the resurrection, unless I see, and this is uh, John twenty twenty five, unless I see the holes in his hands and put my hand in his side, unless I see that, I, I don't believe, I can't believe, and then what happens? Jesus appears. And what's he do? Bless Thomas's heart. <laughs> Jesus didn't get there and, and just kind of rip him a new one and read the riot act and, you know, he said, okay. Here, here. And what did Thomas respond? My Lord and my God. But even Thomas, after the resurrection, didn't understand who Jesus was. He was a hard teacher. In John 6, 53 through 70. Oh, wow. My flesh, eat my flesh, drink my blood. As he expands that concept of communion with him, not communion as the table, but communion with him as a person. And he declares to those that have just received the, the blessing of fish and, and loaves, and he says to them, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What did they do? That's hard teaching, folks. And some of them said, it's just too hard. It's just too hard. He's a hard teacher. I, I, I can't do this. And they left. Then you have to say even more about a hard teacher. Someone comes to him, I want to follow you, Jesus. But let me go bury my father. Let the dead bury their dead. Boy, that sounds heartless. That sounds cruel. I mean, that's in, um, that's in John 6, 59 through 66. But he's making a statement. To follow me, it is an all-out commitment. Take up your cross and deny yourself. You have to follow me. It's all out. It's, it's not 80-20, 50-50, 90-10. It's 100%. Then... Uh, you have someone say, well, let me go say goodbye to my family. What did Jesus say? No, no. And really, and think about this, you need to go bury your father. And Jesus said, no. That's kind of a hard choice, isn't it? Say goodbye to your family. This is a hard man. These are hard teachings. Then you have in Matthew 19, 16 through 30, you have a young man come to him. He's a wealthy man. I do this, I've done this, I've kept the law, I've done everything. And I want to follow you. What should I do? Well, you want to follow me? Give away all your money. Um, mm, would that be a hard teaching? Yeah, so what does this guy do? He goes away sad. And so the opinion, uh, there had to be people who go, man, I, this is just too tough. This is tough stuff. Can't handle this. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. So if you have others after the message, you know, hold them and give them to me later. 
This is just an overview. Then, the most unlikely beings had an opinion about Jesus. In Matthew, I mean in Mark 1, 23 and 24, in the temple, demon was asked and confronted, and he said, you are the Holy One of God. A demon. We see Jesus being challenged by Satan himself. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself off. If you're the Son of God, make bread out of these rocks. He was confronting Jesus because Satan himself knew who he was. And then you also have in Luke 4.41 where demons answered Jesus and said, You are the Son of God. People didn't get it. But the evil denizens of hatred, they knew and they understood. So here are some views of Jesus as Messiah as he's coming into uh, Jerusalem. As he's moving through and saying, okay, uh, what, what is going on here? What, what is happening as I move into uh, the city? Here's all this historic milieu. And we can see it and we can have children do palms and do all the loving, uh, you know, the fun stuff and the, the good stuff for Palm Sunday. But it was a really confusing time. Very difficult time. Now... That's what those people thought. What are some modern ideas of Jesus? Um, he's a myth. Never existed. You know, you can't prove that. It's just books that, you know, the book, many, many, many people wrote him. It's been translated so many different ways. You really can't know. Jesus was just, yeah, he didn't really exist. He was a myth. Or um, he's a good teacher. He taught in parables. He kind of, you know, he must have gone to... Uh, South Carolina graduate school of education and learned how to do a lesson plan. He taught and he was a good teacher. Um, weak and powerless. You know, the, the Jesus that wouldn't judge, the non-judgy Jesus. You know, the one that will let me do my sin and he's okay with it. People saying, you know, Jesus and I were buds, we're good together. That's hard. He is a path to God, right? He is a path to God. I mean, secular culture, you can be a good person. I'm a good person. What do I need Jesus for? Or I can be a Buddhist. I can be a a Muslim. I could be a this. I could be a that. Jesus is just a path to God. And here's one of my favorites. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this. You probably have. I don't have a problem with Jesus. What's the, what's the next line? It's his followers. I don't have a problem with Jesus. It's his followers. Now, that's fair. Because the church has done some pretty stupid stuff. And it's been pretty squirrely. But in that fairness... Then you have to move to the, to the truth of it is, no, you can't say you don't have a problem with Jesus because everyone has a problem with the biblical Jesus. And the first problem is we are all sinners that stand in judgment and he is the one who is the judge. And we have a problem that way. And so we have a problem with the biblical Jesus 
The one we don't have a problem with is the Jesus that we make in our own image. That's the Jesus that we don't have the problem with. So now, that's the world. That's the secular thinking. In the church, some modern ideas of Jesus. In the church, these are some ideas. He is not God. He is not divine. That is doctrine that is being taught in the church universal today. There are many that take that stand. Um, Jesus is one among equals. There are those within the church that do teach that Jesus is one among equals. He is a path to God, not the path. And this is pathetic because this is the church. And a church, the church, part of the church that doesn't profess that the Bible is the word of God They come up with these ideas on their own. Biblical criticism, textual criticism, this, that, and the other. I come to it on my own. I I grapple with it. I wrestle with it. Come to these conclusions. Uh, Jesus isn't hard on sin. He doesn't teach a lot about hell. Uh, He's really morally neutral. Jesus isn't like his followers. Oh, he's not a judgy Jesus. I would just posit that If you say that, you really have not read the scriptures. You have not read the gospels. Jesus is very straightforward about heaven, hell, morality, and these kinds of things. Some in the church believe he's a real person, but not God. There are those in the church, and this is according to a survey taken by Barna, that are not sure that he was sinless. There are um, those in the church that only need good deeds to get to heaven. Yeah, I'm a good person. Why would God hold me out? I I go to church. I don't hurt people. I don't lie. I try not to steal. Yeah, I try to be good. And so, and they miss the whole point. Um, You have the deconstruction Jesus. Why do folks deconstruct their faith? One, partly because God didn't meet their expectations. Now, that may come through the church, and and there are some reasons that people have difficulty with the church, with relationships and things, abuse and power and this, that, and the other, but God didn't meet my expectations. So we have to define what were your expectations. And often it's an outworking of disappointment. Many times deconstruction comes because there's a compromise with the culture and its worldviews, and instead of taking the Bible and looking at the world through the grid of the Bible, many take the, the world and secular thought and philosophy and look at the Bible through it and come with very different conclusions than what the Bible would say. And then you have many times personal sin. Uh, when I was a youth pastor and as a pastor, but it was really very often uh, shown as I, when I was a youth pastor, kids, was, uh, when they would drop out of a uh, youth group, When I would follow up, a lot of times it was because of moral failing, that um, I just sinned. And so how do I make it sound good? Well, the church is stupid. You know, Jesus doesn't do this, that, and the other. And so there's deconstruction. And then one of them that is um, uh, kind of fun is the Jesus that's defined by the left and the right, the Jesus that's joined with my commitments, the left He's the social justice Jesus. And on the right, he's the America Jesus. We have to be careful. 
And so there's the church. There's modern ideas of Jesus, secular ideas. There are the views of the, of the Jews and the people around Jesus as he was moving to this time in his ministry as he was stepping onto that path to the cross. So what we have to do is, okay, there are all these different views. How do we deal with that? How do we answer those? How do we know or how do we ground ourselves that we can understand who Jesus really is? And so, Tara. John 6, um, John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, one of the things that is very difficult for a modern world, particularly our modern culture, to deal with is a, an exclusive Jesus. Now, Jesus is inclusive in the sense that the gospel call goes to everyone. Red, yellow, black, white, North American, South American, Asian, uh, African. The gospel call is to everyone. He's very inclusive with that, but he is also very exclusive. I am the way. There's no other. By his own lips, he makes that claim. By this table, he makes that claim. When we come to the table, we invite the entire uh, fellowship to come, but only those that trust in Christ alone for their salvation are welcome to eat and drink. It's very exclusive. And so Jesus really stands, uh, this is an offensive passage to today's culture. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Um, his claim of deity, we already looked at that in John 8 when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Um, Becky, John 10, 11, and 14. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus makes the claim of good shepherd, and as you understand, you read and study about what a shepherd is, he is the one who came willingly to lay down his life. And then he, um, I believe it was... Um, as he was grappling with Pilate, no one takes my life. I give my life. So here he makes that claim. As the shepherd, he gives his life. In John 13, 1 through 7, we already looked at that. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Then he also claims that if you tear down this temple, speaking of his body, and they missed it thinking he was talking about the physical temple itself. If you tear down this temple in three days, I will raise it up. That's a claim to power. And then you look at all these claims and you tie them back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the, it's really the gospel in Isaiah. The song of the suffering servant the one who was going to come to be Messiah, that was not going to be a king, was not going to be the power monger as he comes into his kingdom, but the one who is going to lay down his life for his people. 
And then we look at what Paul says about Jesus. And that's uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I didn't write that down. I think it's Michael. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind that each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has faithfully exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That is the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we see in, in Paul teaching in Philippians that we as, the, as believers are to have the same mind of Christ. The first portion of that passage is really serving each other. And why should we serve each other? You know, we're very different people. Sometimes we rub each other the wrong way. Uh, sometimes we get grumpy with each other. Uh, sometimes our personalities clash. Sometimes our ideas clash. And so the world would say, set up your own kingdom, fight and work for your own kingdom. And Paul says, now, now serve one another. And here's the reason why. Jesus set aside his equality with God to come and be made in the likeness of man, to be humiliated, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism would say, to live in humiliation. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who cast creation into existence, the one whom the angels look into and wonder about, he came born lowly in nature, in a stable, in straw, in goo and blood, and suckled on his mother's breast, and had to be diapered, had to learn to walk, had to learn to talk, and lived under that and lived perfectly for our salvation. This is the Jesus that we should follow, not the Jesus of our own imaginations and of our own making. And then last, John, I'm, I'm sorry, the Revelation 19, 11 through 16. <clears throat> then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is, a, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has, written, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how Jesus defines himself. 
He's now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He's been resurrected. He has ascended. And he is sitting waiting to come back. And he is to find himself. And when he comes, the world will not be able to define him. The world will find out that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all knees shall bow and every tongue confess. And he is going to come as the warrior king. King Jesus, to strike down, to bring judgment. Because by that time, the offer of the gospel has been made, it's wrapped up, all things are brought to an end. So, the point of this morning, as we conclude and make application, there are all different kinds of ideas of who Jesus is. All kind of ideas who Jesus was as he was riding on that colt going into the city. And there was proclamation and there was joy and there was Hosanna and there was uh, just a, a party atmosphere as he's coming in. And, and then during the week, it turns so very ugly. And we see that at the end. We have to ask ourselves, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Well, that's kind of the same question for each and every one of us. Who do you say he is? Who do I say he is? Is he a Jesus that I have put together that I can be comfortable with and that I can maybe be morally, a little bit morally neutral in some things and I can, I can fudge here and fudge there because he's the, the, the Jesus of all grace and no law? Or is he the Jesus of all law and no grace where we, we work and, and live under such a strict judgment and strict guilt, there's shame and guilt and, and that kind of thing. We have to search our hearts and our minds. Each and every one of us here. Who is the Jesus that you follow? Who is the Jesus that you know and love? Who is the Jesus that has called you to be um, his? And how do you approach him? We need to search deep in our hearts and minds. Because our hearts are rebellious. Our hearts are dark. And even though we're regenerate, those of us who know Christ, we still grapple with sin. We still grapple with the old nature that wants to rebel. And so we have to make that determination in our hearts and in our minds. Do we serve? Do you serve? Do you know? Do you love the biblical Jesus? Or do you serve and love the idol Jesus of your own making? It's a question we need to ask. Would we stand? Would you stand? Shouting Hosanna, putting your coat on the ground, fronds and, and partying, and then at the end of the week, turn because Jesus disappointed you? He didn't meet your expectations? Or are you realistic, knowing that we need to bow our knees now to the Lord, the one who loves us with an everlasting love? And I can say that because this t- table defines Jesus for us. And we'll speak of that in just a moment. 
And folks, we need to be diligent and we need to be on guard because there is more and more pressure these days to follow a lesser Jesus than a greater Jesus. So Hill City, Kim, what are we going to do? Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and kind beyond belief. And your scriptures tell us of the good news. And you tell us that when we follow the Jesus that we want and not the one that you've given us, there is grace and mercy to come back. Father, help, help us as we seek to serve you and love you as we should, knowing our weakness, knowing our failures, knowing our, our foibles and our, our bent toward sinning and toward rebellion. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, give us grace and strength to be able to serve you, love you, and to love and serve the one who defines himself. Lord, help us to see the biblical Jesus. Not only the Jesus who is the one who will judge the world, but the Jesus who said that if I lose one, I will leave the 99 and go find the one. That lovely, lovely Jesus. And so, Father, as we come to this table, turn our eyes to it, this physical expression of what we've learned in your, in your word today. Father, we take this bread and this wine, we set it apart and ask that you use it for a holy purpose that you would minister to us as we see this visible, tangible um, sacrament that declares your love to us, that we eat his flesh and drink his blood. And so we recognize that on the night that he is betrayed, he took that bread, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and told them that this is his body, which is for them. They and we are to eat all of it. And also with the wine, he took the wine, he blessed it, he gave it to them and he told them and he tells us that this is the cup of our salvation, the cup of the new covenant. And we are to eat this bread and drink this wine. As we do, we proclaim the gospel until he comes back. Lord, thank you for those words. Thank you for that teaching. And Lord, we ask that you would go before us as we continue our worship. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.